you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn once again to the book of 2 Corinthians. We are now going to begin chapter 9 this morning, beginning at verse 1 and carrying through the first five verses as Paul shifts somewhat his teaching on giving and generosity. This is more of an application chapter than the previous chapter, which laid out principles for us. And so if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 2 Corinthians 9, beginning at verse 1. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift that you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for the Lord's blessing upon it. <coughs> Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would open up your word to us this morning. That you would reveal to us more of who you are, of your character, Lord. More of what you have done for us. That we might, as we study it, be more and more like Jesus. That is our goal, Lord. Our goal is to put aside the sins that so easily beset us, to put aside all the difficulties and challenges, and to be by the power of your Holy Spirit more and more in the image of our Savior. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. We begin now this morning the ninth chapter of 2 Corinthians, and if you have been with us over the past few months, you will see that we have been in a mini-series of sorts within our series on the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 deal with the subject of giving and generosity. Paul giving instruction to the Corinthians and to us about these topics. And you might ask yourself, is such a mini-series appropriate at this time of the year? Shouldn't we be hearing sermons about shepherds and wise men and angels and stars? Well, I think this time of year is perfect to be thinking about giving. Generosity is a very important subject, not just because of what we do, but because the subject of generosity points us back to the true giver, the Lord God. 
Our Father who has given His Son to us. That's what Christmas is all about, really, isn't it? About a Lord God who gives to us the greatest imaginable gift, His Son, that we might know the forgiveness of sins. And so this morning, as we move into chapter 9, we move into an application phase of a discussion about generosity and giving. In chapter 8, Paul has been giving us principles, and now in chapter 9, he seeks to have us apply these principles. And I would like us to see two things in our text this morning. First, in verses 1 and 2, we see a gentle reminder from the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians. And then second, in verses 3 through 5, we see the gracious results that the Apostle hopes for. A gentle reminder and gracious results. Let's begin then by looking at the gentle reminder that Paul gives to the Corinthians at the beginning of this chapter. As we move into chapter 9, I want to remind you that this chapter is closely connected to chapter 8. You've heard me say it before, but the chapter and verse number divisions in your Bible are not inspired. They, they date back to the 13th century. So we can put it this way. The Bible has not had chapter divisions longer than it has. And so don't let that chapter division make a sharp distinction for you. Some commentators Theologians see these two chapters as being completely separate. They go so far as to say that chapter 9 belongs in an entirely different letter. It's not a part of this second letter to the Corinthians. It's another letter that Paul wrote to all the churches of Achaia. Now, Achaia is simply the state or the province of Greece of which Corinth was the capital. And so they say that this is a separate letter that Paul's written. And the reason they say this is they don't understand why Paul would write this to the Corinthians. Why would Paul repeat himself? Why would Paul even take up this subject matter? And so therefore they conclude that it doesn't belong here. In spite of the fact that there is not one bit of external evidence that it doesn't belong here. Now, I tell you this because this is helpful as you study your Bible. Your Bible comes to you as the Word of God. And it is not for some man to decide which parts are true and which parts are false. Or to move things around to, to meet their own fancy. No. There is no evidence in the church fathers. There is no evidence in church history that there ever was a separate letter to all the churches in Achaia. So there's no good reason to pluck this out of our book. And put it aside. No, what we see here in chapter 9 are more particular details that follow the principles from chapter 8. In chapter 8, we have seen Paul praise the Macedonians, and he's also praised the Corinthians. And Paul has given us a series of seven principles that apply to the giver about giving and generosity. And then you will recall, just recently we looked at three principles that Paul gives to those who receive and distribute the giving of God's people. And now, 
Paul is addressing and putting those principles into action. Now, this is very important. We might say that the theme of the passage before us is that it would be worse to have planned to give and not to give than not to have planned at all. It's worse to have planned generosity and not followed through on it than to have had no intention of giving in the first place, Paul says. And so now Paul gently gives us a reminder to act. We see it in the first word of chapter 9. Now. Now here in the English actually translates two Greek words. The first Greek word that it translates, we see often, and we actually see in this passage, translated as for. It is a connecting word. And so, verse 1 of chapter 9 is obviously connected to verse 24 of chapter 8. This connection is close. So at the end of chapter 8, Paul says to the Corinthians, Give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you. And then he says, For this is what this will look like if you do that. Now, the second Greek word that is translated by now here is what grammarians call a particle. It's a word that ordinarily is not translated. It's a signal word. It gives a sense. And the sense that this word gives is that there is a continuing discourse. You go from one subject to another subject, but there's a strong connection. That's why this is translated now. That's what now does in English, doesn't it? It lets us know that these two paragraphs go together. There's a transition word. Now, we should understand that the doing of a thing makes the planning of a thing real. We can plan all that we want, but unless we do something, it doesn't mean anything. Action in the Christian life is crucial. And so Paul begins by telling the Corinthians what he doesn't need to add to them. He says it would be superfluous for him to continue to write a present tense verb about why they ought to give. Now this word superfluous, if you've never seen it before, it means it goes over the top. I'm repeating myself. I don't need to go on and on. It is beyond what I need to do, Paul says. I don't have to repeat myself, Paul says. After all, Corinthians, you already know the need that is out there. Paul shared that with them back in his first letter in 1 Corinthians 16. He told them about the need in Judea and Jerusalem. He says, you already also have made clear that you have a desire to meet that need. We saw that in the last chapter, in chapter 8, verse 10. So the Corinthians know about the need. They have determined to meet the need. They have purposed to give. But he does take time to remind them what is really at stake. And he does this when he uses the phrase, the ministry for the saints. Now, this word ministry is an interesting word. It has a very broad use. It's the word that we get deacon from. It means service or ministry or help. 
It can mean meeting physical needs. That's where we find it in Acts chapter 6, when we see that there are those who need to minister the physical needs to others, particularly in this instance, provide for widows who are without. That is a ministry that the first deacons provide. And we see this same sort of ministry in Acts chapter 11 and chapter 12, when Paul talks about his ministry or his service that he has been providing to the saints in Jerusalem by taking up these collections. We see this same use earlier in this book in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 4. Paul talks about the relief of the saints that the Macedonians wanted to be involved in. And that word relief is the same word here that we have for ministry. It's deaconing, if you will. But this word can also refer to the ministry of the word. So, for example, in Acts chapter 6, verse 4, the same word is used first in verse 1 to talk about physical ministry for the deacons, and that ministry is given to deacons because in verse 4, so that the elders can give themselves to the ministry, same word, of the word of God. We see this also earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul talks about the ministry that has been given to him by the Lord. And perhaps the most famous passage on ministry that we find in Paul's letters is in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12 where Paul says that Jesus has given pastors and teachers to the church for the equipping of the saints for ministry. That's all-inclusive. It involves teaching. It involves helping. It involves all aspects of gospel ministry. Now, why is this important? It's because Paul is signaling to us that this is about so much more than a bare collection of funds for people in need. What is going on here is a tangible proof of love for fellow Christians. Fellow Christians who are in need. It is a tangible sign of the unity of the church. Now think about this. What Paul is doing here is more than just transferring money from ledger A to ledger B. What he is doing is letting those believers who are of Jewish extraction know that believers of Gentile extraction, thousands of miles away, whom they've never met, are so united to them in Jesus that they have sacrificially given for their benefit. It tells you and me that no matter where we grew up, no matter what language we speak, no matter what food we eat, we are all united in Christ. The church is universal. It covers all tribes, tongues, and nations. And Paul says, that's what's going on here. And you know it. So, I'm not going to repeat it. Now, there is nothing wrong with repeating things. And we might even say that Paul is repeating himself. You know, usually we leave this to moms to look at their children and say, now, I'm not going to tell you what I want you to do. And then mom proceeds to tell them exactly what she wants them to do. And the, I'm not going to tell you is kind of an earmarker. Listen up. Now, Paul could be doing that in a sense. Because that's what a good teacher does. A good teacher repeats for someone what they already know so that they remember. You may have even heard me say that my job as a pastor, 
My main job is to repeat for you things you already know so that you might live in them and love them. And the Bible itself does this, doesn't it? We need to see that the Bible not only teaches us things, but it also emphasizes certain things by repeating them over and over again. And so as you study the scriptures, I want to encourage you to take note of what the Bible emphasizes. And that should be the main thing that you dwell on. You shouldn't be scouring your Bible to find unique things, unique teachings that no one's ever thought of so that you can somehow become an expert in something small and tiny. No, you should be studying the scriptures to get the main points and main themes so that you know them by memory. Now, what is it that Paul knows? In verse 2, he tells us why he's writing this part of the letter. And what he knows already is what makes this superfluous for him to go on about. Because he already knows it's true. And again in verse 2 we see this connecting word for. Connecting verse 1 and verse 2. It's unnecessary for Paul to repeat these things because he already knows that they're true. The Corinthians don't need to be convinced of that. They don't need to change. These things are already true. And he starts by saying, I know your readiness to take part in the giving project. For I know your readiness of which I boast about you, Paul says, to the people of Macedonia. Now, the Corinthians' readiness to give, their generosity, was such that they didn't need to be shamed into it. They didn't need to be forced into giving. No, they were ready. And this word here for readiness means more than to be willing. It means to be enthusiastic about something. To be excited about it. To be ready to do it in the most eager of ways. It is one thing to be willing to do something. It is another thing to be excited about something. You may be willing to do some work around the house, but you get downright excited about going on vacation. It's something you're eager to take on. And that's what Paul says. They have a readiness about them. They are eager for this collection. They want to be a part of this project of generosity. And this is the way that readiness is used in other areas of the Bible. So, for example, in Acts chapter 17, we read that the Bereans received the word of God with readiness. They were eager for God's word. They wanted more of God's word. Paul himself in Romans chapter 1 tells us that he is eager, same word, to preach the gospel at Rome. Peter in his first letter in chapter 5 says that shepherds should be willing, that is eager, that is enthusiastic to shepherd the flock. It shouldn't be by compulsion. It shouldn't be something they feel they have to do. They should long to do it. And this word is a word we see over and over again in this section we've been looking at in chapter 11 verse excuse me in chapter 8 verse 11 in chapter 8 verse 12 and then again in verse 19 Paul talks about this eagerness this readiness. So Paul knows this. We know that Paul knows this. It's not false praise. Because he wrote that this readiness showed itself more than a year ago in the Corinthians. The Corinthians were eager to be a part of this project. It was their desire. And Paul describes what this readiness looked like. First, 
It was something he boasted about. We see this in verse 2, that he boasted about it to the people of Macedonia. Now, this is interesting for a couple of reasons. First, you will recall that at the beginning of this section, the beginning of chapter 8, Paul started out by boasting about the Macedonians to the Corinthians. He told the Corinthians that the Macedonians had given beyond their means and that they were so eager to be a part of this project of generosity that they begged Paul to use them. And so he boasted about the Macedonians to the Corinthians. But now here, he tells us that he had boasted about the Corinthians to the Macedonians. If we connect the dots, it's that Paul got the Macedonians going before chapter 8 by telling them about the purpose of the Corinthians. He went to the Corinthians and he said, the Macedonians are great givers. And he had gone to the Macedonians and said, you know, the Corinthians have been purposing for about a year to put together this gift of generosity. And so Paul is encouraging both of them. But the other thing that's interesting about this, not only is there this dual boasting, boasting is something that Paul is ordinarily very careful about. Now, this word to boast is used almost exclusively by Paul, and he uses it very often. 36 times it occurs in your Bible. 34 of them by Paul. There are just two offhand references to boasting in the book of James. So this is a Pauline theme. Paul talks about boasting, but he's very careful how he applies boasting. He tells us what we should boast in and what we should not boast in. And so, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31, he says, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Well, that's interesting. And then later in this book, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17, he says, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So what Paul is telling us is, if you're going to boast, boast in God. And we want to stop for a moment and say, Paul, did you miss your own advice? You told us only to boast in the Lord, and now you're boasting in the Corinthians. And you're boasting in the Macedonians. What are you doing here? Why would Paul boast in someone other than the Lord? And I think the answer gets back to our principles that we have been saying over and over about generosity and giving. You will recall that Paul has told us that giving is a grace of God. That it is an effect of a heart that has been changed by Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit working God's grace in us to make us generous and givers. Over and over again, Paul has been telling us it's not about the dollar signs. It's not about how big your checkbook is. It's about the heart. We've seen this over and over again. And when we think about that, then this makes sense. Because when Paul is boasting in the generosity of the Corinthians, what he's really boasting in is the Lord's work in them. Because the only way they could be generous, Paul has told us, is if they have this grace. Is if God grows this grace in them. It's a sign of God's work that they're generous. It's not something they work up in themselves. It's what God has done. So when Paul is boasting here in the Corinthians, he's really boasting in the Lord. He's saying, look at what God has done. Look at how God has changed this people. Before, they were pagans. They didn't know God. They didn't know that God had made the world. 
They had no love for their brethren. They had no love for the Lord Jesus Christ. They were selfish. They were self-centered. But now, because they have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, they are changed forever. Look at what God has done. The second thing that Paul tells us about what this uh, readiness has done for the Corinthians is that it had stirred up others to activity. We see this at the end of verse 2. Your zeal has stirred up most of them, that is, most of the Macedonians. Paul was conscious that his boasting had an effect on other people. It made the godly desires of the Corinthians infectious. Now, there's a word I don't have to define for you in 2020, right? Infectious. We know what that's all about. We know that we can't get within a certain distance because someone will pass a disease on to us. We don't want to touch certain things people have touched. We need to wash our hands. We need to keep distance because of the infectious nature of this disease. It's not just diseases that are infectious. Paul tells us that godly desires and actions are infectious. When you see someone else exhibit godly desires and act upon them, you get caught up in it. You want to be a part of it too. You want to follow the Lord. You want to see those blessings of the Lord. That's what Paul's saying here is happening. That the Corinthians infected the Macedonians. And then, as we saw earlier, the Macedonians now are reinfecting the Corinthians. This is kind of like flu season in a family. You know, where you hope that it doesn't keep going round and round. You hope that there's an end to the infection. Well, you don't hope there's an end to this kind of infection. An infection of godliness. That it will go back and forth and stir us all up to love and good deeds. Paul wants the Corinthians to experience this grace. And so he wants them to excel in the grace of giving and to be blessed by the Lord through their giving. Remember that giving is less about amounts and more about the heart. And the way that the believer grows in grace is not just to think about it, nor even to desire it, but to actually act upon it. Paul wants to stir the Corinthians up and you to actions. That's what happened. This verb stirred up means to challenge someone to action, to excite someone to a feeling, to provoke them. The other place in the Bible where it's used is Colossians chapter 3, where fathers are told not to provoke their children to discouragement, not to make their children discouraged. But here it's used in a positive sense. Paul tells them to be stirred up, that their ability and their readiness to give has stirred up others, many others. Do you see then how important action is? How important following through is? This principle can be applied throughout the Christian life. But Paul makes it relevant here to giving and generosity. It's not enough to want to give. We must actually give, Paul says. It is so important 
that Paul tells us it is proper to tell believers what other believers have done, and specifically that they have given. Paul can say that because giving is a grace. He's not boasting in other people. He is boasting in what the Lord has done in them. And so what we hear from Paul is that it is right and good to be stirred up to holy desires and actions by the report of such in other people. That is how God spreads His grace. Now, after Paul reminded the Corinthians what he knew about their readiness to give, he turns to what he hopes to accomplish by his writing. And this are, these are the gracious results that Paul hopes to see in the Corinthians. His reminder was about following through, completing. And now he explains what he's doing to bring about that follow through, to bring about that completion. Remember that Paul has sent a team of three under the leadership of Titus. And Paul introduces this once again in verse 3. The but here, beginning verse 3, links to the now at the beginning of verse 1. It may be superfluous to write this, Paul says, but certainly it's not superfluous to act. And so Paul is doing. He has sent the team with Titus. Now remember how important this was to Paul. He is sending the brothers which means he's sending his important helper, his partner in the gospel, Titus. And he's also sending the two unnamed workers, the one who is famous in the gospel and the other one who is earnest and well-tested. And he's sending them on this mission. And that required a great deal of work because recall that Paul got many churches involved. This was not the Pauline parachurch ministry. No, he went to all of the churches and he said, who should we send? Give your stamp of approval. And you remember the way Paul said it, that these men were appointed. Literally, the churches raised their hands and voted for these men. They said, we're behind them. Send them. Our churches are behind this mission. This is a major effort. This is not just three men taking a journey. So what is Paul trying to bring about then? Well, he tells us. He tells us by giving us both the positive and the negative in verse 3. Let's start with the positive, even though it comes up second. At the end of verse 3, he says, He does this so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Paul wants them to be ready, to be prepared. That's his purpose in sending Titus and his team. Paul says they should have prepared themselves to accomplish what they had intended. They had intended this a year ago, and yet they're not ready. They're not prepared to finish it off. A year has gone by. They had the readiness of purpose. They were willing. Paul knew it. They know it. The Macedonians know it. But they didn't yet have the readiness of performance. You see, there's a difference between readiness of purpose and readiness of performance. Follow through is what Paul is saying. The entire point of having preparedness for a purpose is to then have preparedness for performance. 
Otherwise, it's worthless. What good is it to purpose to do something and never to bring it about? One has to follow the other. In fact, when discussing the negative aspect of this, Paul writes that it will be worse to have purposed to give without the performance than never to have purposed in the first place. Paul says, I don't want my boasting about you to prove empty. That's the negative here. He's sending Titus and his team first positively so that the Corinthians will be ready and secondly so that his boasting in them will not prove vain or empty. In that sense, it would all be nullified, worthless, null and void, Paul says. And Paul explains why in a very pointed but delicate way in verse 4. He says, if you are not ready, when the Macedonians come with me to Corinth, if you are scrambling to take up a collection, if I come into town with the Macedonians and I've told them you've been purposing this for a year and they have since come to purpose it, taken up their whole collection, got their envoys and are coming with me now to Corinth and they come to Corinth and you aren't ready, but you're scrambling around. What will they think? Paul says. It will look like you didn't care about this at all. And you certainly aren't organized enough to be ready. And if that happens, Paul says, I will be humiliated. I will be ashamed. I will be embarrassed. I had boasted about you. And my boasting will have proven false. But do you see what Paul is doing here? It's not just that he's concerned about his own reputation. Now he does not want his confidence in the Lord to be shown false. He doesn't want his confidence in the Corinthians to be shown to be untrue. It is the Corinthians who will really look bad in this situation. Paul has described this by bringing the main shame down upon himself, but he manages to let the Corinthians know that they'll be humiliated too. Do you see how he does it? He says, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you. It's almost an offhand phrase, an aside, but it's a pretty important phrase, isn't it? If you had ears to hear and you were a Corinthian, you would hear it. Because you might not care if Paul was red-faced, but if Paul's going to be red-faced, you're going to be beat scarlet. Because Paul, after all, is just the one who's boasting. He's just the one who's been traveling to and from Corinth. You are the one who lives there. You're the one that made this purpose. And you have not been ready. So the Corinthians would be humiliated. Do you see how Paul is operating here? He is using their sense of shame to push them on to action. If they have a willingness to do something, but they won't take the effort to follow through, then their initial willingness will actually look bad. And this is something important for us, I think, to see. It is right and good to appeal to believers to avoid shame. Now, we might not think that. Because we live in a day and age in which all shame is bad. And that is why in our society, we never hold anyone accountable. We excuse sin on a broad scale because we don't ever want anyone to feel uncomfortable or ashamed. We're more worried about their self-esteem than about their holiness. But Paul tells us the exact opposite. 
He says it's perfectly appropriate to use shame to spur someone on to godliness. When you know to do good, and you have a willingness to do it, and you don't, you should be ashamed, Paul says. Now notice this. Not condemned. Paul doesn't say you'll lose your salvation. He doesn't say your church will be no more. He doesn't say you'll have no portion in Jesus. There is a large difference between being ashamed and being condemned. And too often we equate the two, and so we jettison the idea of shame. But shame is real and true, and it is natural. Let me ask you this. Who taught you how to blush? I'll wait. The answer is no one, right? No one needs to be taught to blush. It just comes naturally when we are ashamed about something. And so God uses that sense of shame that we have naturally to spur us on to love and holiness. Do you see that in your own life? If everyone knew exactly how much you prayed, would you be ashamed? If everyone knew exactly how much you read your Bible, would you be ashamed before them? If everyone knew exactly how much you helped others, would you be ashamed before them? Would you be ashamed if everyone knew exactly what your generosity looked like? Now, I'm not asking you to put that on display. We're not going to have a, a, a forum after the service in which we, we call out everyone for their Bible reading and their praying. But I want you to use that to spur yourself on. If you would be ashamed by how much you pray, then you know what? Pray more. If you would be ashamed by how well you know your Bible, then read your Bible more. Stir yourself on to holiness and good deeds. Now, lest we associate shame with manipulation and force, Paul concludes in verse 5 with a second result that he hopes for. He says, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not as an exaction. Now, Paul has told us exactly what he knows, that the Corinthians are willing and ready to give. And he's told us that he wants them to be not only ready to purpose to give, but to be ready to perform their giving. And then he describes here in this verse 5 how and why he will bring about this readiness of performance. And so he does it by beginning in verse 5 with so. And once again, so is our old friend. It's therefore. I don't even need to tell you what the therefore is therefore. You know this drill. Paul says that because of what we know is true in verses 1 through 4, the result that I hope to see is in verse 5. It was necessary to send Titus and his team on ahead to help them to be ready so that their giving would be willing, Paul says. So that you would be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Now, the planning is what will make sure that the gift comes from an open hand and a willing heart. Paul uses in advance language over and over again in this verse. They are sent on in advance. 
The things are arranged in advance. And the gift is even promised in advance. In each of these verbs, the idea of being done beforehand or in advance is present. And the result will be that the blessing, the generous gift, will be a true blessing. That's actually what this word is. The word for gift here is not the ordinary word for gift. It is the word for a blessing. And Paul says, so that the blessing you have would be a true and real blessing to others. He doesn't want the gift to be seen as an exaction. Now, do you know what an exaction is? The best example of an exaction in our society are taxes. You have to pay your taxes. Now, who here, raise your hand, loves and is eager to pay their taxes? What? No hands? Well, why do you pay your taxes then if you don't want to? And you would answer, Pastor, you're being silly now. If we don't pay our taxes, we're going to go to jail. That's why we pay our taxes. That's the definition of an exaction. It's something that's taken from you under pressure or compulsion. And Paul says, we want your gift to be a willing blessing or gift to others, not an exaction. Now, this is a difficult translation here because this word for exaction is only translated in all of the Bible here as exaction. In every other place that this word is translated, it is translated as either greed or covetousness. Now, if you wonder why didn't they translate it there, read it. So that you might be ready as a willing gift, not as a covetousness. And you say, that doesn't make any sense, Pastor. Why would somebody give a covetousness? What does that mean? Well, let me see if I can give it to you in perspective. One church father puts it this way. Giving is called covetousness when it's done with a grasping and stingy heart. But it is called a blessing when it is done with a generous and an eager heart. You see, what Paul's saying here is what he's been saying over and over again. That it's not whether you give or don't, or whether you give a lot or a little, that is a sign of being covetous. It's what your heart is like in it. And you could be pulling huge bills out of your wallet and be coveting all the way along. And you could be going into your pocket and finding pennies. And if you give out of a heart that flows with love and a desire to serve the Savior and to bless others, then you are a generous giver. That's what Paul's saying here. Why is giving and generosity so important? Why does Paul take so much time with the Corinthians on it? It's not as if the Corinthians don't have other problems as well. They're a church full of problems. And why is all of this recorded for us? Why do we have two chapters in this letter recorded for us now about giving and generosity? Why does God want us to know so much about giving? Is God that desperate to support his church? No, of course not. God doesn't need anything. The reason that he is speaking to us about giving is to give us another way to understand who he is. God is the model giver. He is the generous one. 
After all, He gave His only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for us. And He gave because of His heart of love. What opened God's hand was His heart. For God so loved the world, the Bible tells us, that He sent His only begotten Son. And Jesus shows us that same heart of God. Jesus willingly gave Himself to death that we might have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. The Father and the Son did not just purpose to give. They accomplished their giving. God followed through on His purpose with performance. Aren't you humbled to hear of a God like that? Do you know this giving God? Have you accepted the free gift of the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, then today is the day. Don't wait a moment. Jesus is the gift that can change everything for you. If you just believe, Jesus is yours right now. Open your hands. Receive the ultimate willing gift. Receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.